Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 35. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's one and only violin concerto in D major, opus 61, completed in 1806. Beethoven had actually worked on a sketch for an earlier concerto in C major, or at least the first movement of one, between 1790 and 1792. And, of course, his two earlier Romances for Violin and Orchestra, which we looked at in episode 26, provided a glimpse into the sort of lyrical writing for the instrument of which Beethoven was capable. A few commentators have speculated that those two romances may in fact be slow movements for concertos which were never completed or possibly lost, but at this point that would be difficult to confirm. And of course the solo violin played a key role in his triple concerto of 1805, although its very specialized role in that context makes it difficult to make a direct comparison with the concerto in D major. Of course, Beethoven did have some experience with the instrument. His father had instructed him in violin and viola, and he became sufficiently adept to play in the court orchestra in Bonn. Even after moving to Vienna, Beethoven took additional lessons, hoping to improve his facility on the instrument, or at least get a better grasp of its expressive possibilities. Unfortunately, he did not appear to improve much, and more than one of his colleagues characterized his playing as deficient and frequently out of tune, even before his encroaching deafness began to plague him. Was there a particular inspiration for the concerto in D major? We know that Beethoven had been sufficiently impressed by the violinist Rudolf Kreutzer that he dedicated to him his rather virtuosic violin sonata in A major from 1803. Kreutzer was not impressed with the work, however, and probably never played it, so the premiere was handled by George Polgreen Bridgetower, as I described in episode 25. In this case, the concerto, dedicated to his long-standing friend Stefan von Brüning, was composed for the Austrian violinist Franz Clement, whom Beethoven had come to admire some years earlier, declaring, Nature and art vie with each other in making you a great artist. Clement was known for the purity of his tone and elegance and a certain charming tenderness rather than his power or virtuosity, and those qualities may well have played into Beethoven's decision to produce a work which, although not without its technical difficulties, was considerably less virtuosic in nature than many violin concertos coming out of the early years of the century. Clement was also seen as somewhat old-fashioned in his approach, even at this stage, employing somewhat out-of-date bows and bowing techniques and hesitating to embrace new advancements in the construction of the violin. Somewhat paradoxically, this conservative musician was also known for sometimes presenting himself almost as a circus act, playing pieces on a single string with the instrument turned upside down. Nevertheless, Beethoven was much taken with him, at least at this point, and inscribed on the manuscript score a friendly salutation, translated as, With Clemency for Clement, presumably because the work was completed just in time before the performance with a number of last-minute corrections penciled into the score. These presumably last-minute changes included some sketches of alternate passages, so it's possible that Beethoven asked Clement's opinion about certain passages or offered alternatives to please him. It's also possible that Beethoven may have inquired of Clement's views in this regard, but then went ahead and proceeded according to his original intentions anyway, which would not be the first or last time a composer had requested and then promptly disregarded a performer's opinion as to what worked best on his or her instrument. The first movement of the concerto begins with four soft taps by the timpani on the tonic note of the key. Is this an indication that the concerto is to echo the military style found in French-influenced concertos even before the Revolution, and now after it more than ever? 
We've seen that Beethoven himself had in recent years sometimes featured the timpani or timpani-styled motives as in the third piano concerto in C minor, which we looked at in episode 24. And, of course, there is the slow movement of Symphony Number no. 4, which we looked at in the last episode, which also makes conspicuous use of timpani-like motives. And, as we'll see, this repeated note motive introduced by the timpani echoes throughout the first movement of the violin concerto, and some Beethoven scholars find it working behind the scenes in the final two movements as well. And yet other commentators suggest that, the opening motive notwithstanding, this concerto does not really display a particularly military bent. Let's take a closer look. The first movement, in common time and marked Allegro Manantropo and Dolce, follows the introductory measure of timpani taps with a serenely lyrical first theme, introduced by oboes, clarinets, and bassoons. It unfolds in two balanced phrases the first beginning on the fifth of the scale over a tonic chord, moving up a single note and then gently descending, ending up on a note a fourth lower, harmonized by a dominant chord. Its most distinctive aspect may be the gentle syncopation in the second measure of the oboe parts. Here is the timpani intro and then the initial four-bar phrase, ending with five more timpani taps on the dominant. The responding phrase, which begins on the dominant chord, but returns to the tonic in the last measure, lacks the mild syncopation of the first, but does incorporate a little crescendo surge coinciding with the most dramatic gesture in the phrase, the leap of a fourth to an accented, mildly dissonant note. We're going to refer to the theme made up of these two phrases as Orchestra 1A, since it's the first introduced in the orchestral exposition, which, as you may recall, is to be followed by the soloist exposition, but more of that later. What happens next, after the theme is presented, is a little unexpected, a series of soft eighth notes, one per beat, on D-sharp. These repeated eighth notes can readily be heard as transferred from those initial timpani strokes, but it's the D-sharp accidental that's more unexpected. Is Beethoven already by the tenth measure of the movement, suggesting a key change is coming soon? Is this the beginning of a modulation? The answer comes quickly enough, and it's no. The D-sharps disappear in the next measure, and we hear a reassuring dominant seventh chord in D major those timpani-like repeated eighth notes now taken up by the low strings. But then, in the very next measure, the mysterious D-sharps reappear, now in the second violins, doubled by the violas. So, are we now going to experience a key change? Well, the answer is still no, or at least not yet, because what follows is another reassuring phrase solidly confirming the key of D major. It begins slowly with a whole note tied over the bar on the ninth of a dominant ninth chord and then works its way down the octave. Although different from the second phrase of the first theme, it features some of the same elements and serves here as a tag to bring the first thematic area to a close. Here's an excerpt starting with the introduction of those repeated chromatic D sharps and closing on a dominant chord eight bars later. So, in the end, those inserted D-sharp repeated notes don't really seem to have accomplished much. They did not indicate that there was a modulation directly ahead, because when the whole thing ended, we're back securely in D major. So, what did they accomplish? Introduce just a hint of tension? 
an indication that perhaps not everything would be quite as serene and lovely as it initially seemed as we go forward. We'll see. Starting in measure 18, we now hear a new theme, also marked dolce and presented initially as a duet between clarinet and bassoon. I'm going to refer to it as Orchestra 1B rather than Orchestra 2, not because it lacks distinctive new elements, because it does have some, but because its overall mood is very consistent with that of Orchestra 1A, and there's no decisive break separating it from that first thematic idea. The new theme starts on the tonic note with a half note and then moves up a tenth in eighth notes, but then it drops back to the original pitch level before starting the pattern over again, this time a step higher. After four bars, the oboes take their turn back on the original pitch level, crescendoing up to forte for the melodic peak of the phrase although the phrase ends differently this time, gently moving down the scale to end pianissimo on a dominant chord. Even though this new thematic idea is again marked piano and dolce, it's heard against a new and distinctive rhythmic accompaniment from the lower strings, a repeated series of sixteenth notes. Here is the new theme that I'm referring to as Orchestra 1B. What comes next is a bit of a jolt. The pianissimo dominant chord resolves deceptively up a half step to B flat in a fortissimo transition passage, beginning with the return of the repeated sixteenth notes now assigned to all the strings and timpani. Tonally, we seem to be on the move, and after a half a dozen measures, we appear to be in D minor. Those repeated sixteenth notes, now shifted to the second and fourth beat of the measure, return in the form of ascending and descending scale fragments, most notably in first violins. But after a few bars of this, the pattern changes slightly, transporting us back to the original tonic key. Here is the transition. So, the new theme presented at this point, primarily in the woodwinds, which I'll refer to as Orchestra 2, is still in D major. It resembles Orchestra 1 in some respects, but this theme unfolds more in two measure units, the first beginning on the tonic chord and ascending, the second on the dominant chord and descending. As before, the theme as a whole occupies eight measures, the last four a variant of the first four. Of note here is the return of the repeated on the beat eighth notes of the original opening timpani motive, assigned here to the first violins for the first eight bars. It's not disruptive here, the notes all fit comfortably within the prevailing harmony. The second statement of this theme is in D minor, assigned to first and second violins and it's accompanied by a more elaborate contrapuntal flow of undulating triplets in violas and cellos. As the second half of the theme comes to a close, we seem to be moving toward F major, and as the final two bars are repeated on different pitch levels and the woodwinds enter to double the melody, we waver back and forth between F major and D minor. Here is Orchestra 2 up to that point.
Once this new theme has run its course, we hear another transition section. It could well be thought of as a closing section, which crescendos into the brief codetta. Sometimes I skip these sections in my excerpts, but I'm going to play this one because it begins softly with a clever little two-bar phrase which again references the repeated note timpani motive, this time on a somewhat disruptive diminished seventh chord played by the strings. But the chord soon opens up into a dominant seventh chord with the seventh in the bass and then moves to a more rhythmically vigorous passage dominated by repeated sixteenth notes in the strings against slower-moving melodic activity in the woodwinds. It employs additional diminished seventh chords to build up a little tension, but when all is said and done, we end up still back in D major, where we encounter a little codetta theme of two measures that evokes the second theme to some degree as it's passed back and forth between first violins and low strings. Here is the transition or closing section, moving into the brief codetta that brings the orchestral exposition to a close. The violinist begins the soloist exposition with a fairly modest little flourish, prolonging the initial dominant seventh chord for twelve measures, first by an ascending arpeggio with octave grace note leaps, and then a long undulating descent in triplets, extending almost to the very bottom of the violin's range, followed by a gradual ascent in broken third sixteenth notes, leading back up to the top of the range. The solos then continues on to a slightly embellished version of Orchestra 1A, with the mysterious F-sharp timpani motives played by the first violins still intact. This leads to an extensively embellished version of the four-bar tag, taking us right up to Orchestra 1B. The Orchestra 1B theme is assigned first to the orchestral 2D as the soloist drops out briefly. You heard it sneak in just at the end of my last excerpt. Although it begins in a manner reminiscent of its first appearance, it soon departs from the original version with the strings picking up the theme forte and the soloist returning with a far more embellished version based first on octave leaps in sixteenth notes and then a variety of other figuration patterns. As before, we appear to be modulating, but this time we wander further afield, 
moving eventually to A major as the clarinets and bassoons present Orchestra II in that key over the soloist's trill. After the soloist takes its turn with Orchestra II, the theme is then presented in the parallel minor, with the soloist first embroidering the melody extensively with various patterns based on triplets and sixteenth notes. The soloist then gives us its version of the closing section motive, and we are not far from a return of the Codetta theme, fully ornamented by the soloist, and the end of the second exposition. Here's some of the highly ornamented new version of the closing section and the Codetta. The soloist takes us into the development section with a series of eighth note triplet runs based primarily on ascending thirds and later an ascending chromatic scale, punctuated by dramatic chords from the orchestra. This concludes with a pair of trills, against which we hear a return of the timpani motive, played initially very softly by first violins. The tonality is a little ambiguous here just as it was the first time we encountered this motive. But after a couple of bars, the repeated eighth notes are expressed in full chords, and we get a sense of C major, although it doesn't last very long. Soon the woodwinds are sustaining a dominant seventh chord on E, making it very likely that we're headed to A major, while the soloist provides a long flow of gradually crescendoing sixteenth notes. Here is the final part of the solo violin's link to the beginning of the development section, the ascending chromatic scale leading to the first trill, and the return of the repeated note timpani motive.
that repeated note timpani motive will recur several more times in the development section. It never really rises up to generate anything like a great climax, but instead is used more as the motivic glue that holds much of the development section together, and in fact the movement as a whole. As we move through the parade of different themes and passages of virtuoso figuration by the soloist. But that does not mean that the development section will retain the so far quiet, almost intimate mood from beginning to end, because we're about to encounter the rather noisy transition passage from the exposition, arrived at again by a deceptive cadence. It's in a different key this time, but this transition to the Orchestra 2 theme is otherwise very much like the one we heard in the exposition. One of the critics of Beethoven's day, in commenting on the violin concerto, expressed his admiration for the first movement's lyrical themes, but complained about the over-repetition of too many uninspiring passages. It's difficult to know exactly what the critic was referring to, but it's possible that this transition was one of those uninspired passages. When we first heard it in the orchestral exposition, it provided some needed contrast between lyrical themes. The passage is bypassed in the soloist version of the exposition, but now here it is again, different in key, but otherwise very similar to its first appearance. And when the recapitulation finally arrives, the same passage is basically repeated again in the original key, at least the first part of it. The last section is somewhat truncated. So, we hear this same passage in much the same form three times in all. Is that an over-repetition of a less inspiring passage? It may have seemed so to the critic in question. As we continue on in the development section, Beethoven then presents the Orchestra II theme, in a form virtually identical to its first appearance, although this time we hear it beginning in A major rather than D major. Now, as we continue on and the key changes to the parallel minor, some differences between the two versions of the theme emerge. The theme is more thickly scored here, although an effective triplet contramelody in the low strings heard originally in the exposition has been replaced here by a perhaps less interesting broken thirds pattern of sixteenth notes. Also, we encounter a new key change here as we come to the end of the melody. But nevertheless, there is much that remains the same here in the development section, including the appearance of the closing section, the codetta, and the solo violins entering flourish. In the second half of the development section, the section corresponding more to the soloist exposition, more significant differences emerge. When the soloist enters with Orchestra I, briefly suggesting the key of F-sharp minor, the theme now sounds more ethereal than serene, and the second phrase is much transformed as the soloist weaves a flow of triplets around the melody now transported in varied form to the bassoons in E minor. The timpani motive is still present, alternating with the bassoon phrases, but now it too has taken on a new, more mysterious aspect. As we proceed, Beethoven gives us a rare example, rare for this development section at any rate, of motivic manipulation. Measures 3 and 4 of Orchestra 1 are separated from the first part of the phrase and treated independently. And after a few measures, the note values are halved. 
What was heard originally as an undulating line in quarter notes is now heard as eighth notes, doubled in thirds in the bassoons. Let's hear that part beginning with the entrance of the soloist playing Orchestra One in a new haunting version. And arriving right after this section, with the horns now playing the timpani motive in octaves against it, is an actual new melody, and a highly expressive one at that, in G minor. The key itself is somewhat unusual in this context, and the fact that the melody is brand new is as well, although not unheard of. And you may remember the new theme introduced in the first movement development section of the Eroica Symphony. This new theme moves to E-flat major for a while and changes character slightly, but then moves on to D minor, and in its various embellishments and ornamental arabesques, it remains exquisite from start to finish. This may well be the melodic high point of the entire movement, and it leads into an expressive transition, still focusing on the solo violin, which leads eventually into the recapitulation. Having spent a great deal of time on the expositions and development section, we'll deal with the recapitulation more briefly. It begins rather brashly with those first gentle timpani taps now transformed into a fortissimo proclamation by the entire orchestra minus the soloist, and the first theme, Orchestra 1A, unfolds in much the same manner. Here's a little bit of it. The Orchestra 1B theme is taken this time by the soloist, who charges up the scale with octave leaps, reproducing with some variation its virtuoso passage in the development section. Eventually, clarinet and bassoon get their chance as well, but the soloist remains the star attraction, 
as we make our way toward Orchestra 2. From that point, the music unfolds much as expected, and we eventually arrive at the cadenza, for which several alternatives exist. After those fireworks, Beethoven knows better than to try to prolong the conclusion of the movement, which ends with a final statement of Orchestra II by the soloist, a hint of the codetta, and a final, fairly modest flourish by the soloist. Here is the final portion of one such cadenza, followed by the coda. The slow movement that follows in G major, common time, and marked larghetto begins pianissimo in the strings with a gentle but solemn theme that begins on the tonic note with a dotted note upbeat and then moves two steps up the scale. The pattern is then repeated in measure two with a contrasting, more expansive idea introduced in the third bar and extending into the fourth. The first two measures are quite simple harmonically, alternating tonic and dominant chords, although the resolution to tonic comes on a weak beat, beat two, both times, which blurs its metric identity to a degree. Those weak beat cadences continue on through the sixth measure of the theme, and variants of the opening motive are repeated twice more. But by the time we reach measure four, actually beginning on the last beat of measure three, Beethoven introduces a bit of harmonic variety with a series of secondary dominant type chords, starting with an F-sharp major chord and following the circle of fifths until we make it all the way back to the tonic chord. So, after a rather static beginning with a minimum of harmonic activity in the first two and a half bars, we hear a lot of relatively fast-moving harmonic activity in the next six. It's actually a little more complicated than my description suggests, since the second violins manage to incorporate an interesting countermelody into the mix in the form of a chromatic line while all this is going on. Here are the first seven bars. There are three additional measures to go in this theme, and they're especially important ones. First of all, because they stabilize the harmonic activity and return us securely to G major. But also because melodically, despite their simplicity, or perhaps because of it, they project a particularly noble quality, 
and play an important role as we continue throughout the movement. The first variation begins with the horns employing the first measure of the theme to evoke a traditional hunting call motive, perhaps as a prequel to the hunting theme featured in the third movement rondo. Clarinets and high strings soon join in for the second bar of the variation and beyond, while the solo violin begins with an ascending arpeggio figure which initially seems inspired by the last two bars of the theme but soon moves higher in its range for a more florid display, including a brief cadenza-like flourish over a fermata. The rest of the ten-bar variation continues with the clarinet taking the theme and the solo violin continuing its high-range embellishments. In the next variation, the main melodic activity is entrusted to bassoons and low strings, with the soloist again engaging in more florid embellishments. Here's a little bit of it. For the third variation, the soloist drops out and the theme is presented in mostly block chords by the strings with the woodwinds and horns reiterating the opening dotted rhythm figure. Here is the first part of the variation. So far, I've described this as a theme and variations movement, but in fact, it is often described as a double variation movement, because at this point, Beethoven has the soloist introduce a new theme after a four-bar transition. Is it completely new? More than one commentator has referred to the final measures of the first theme as being its source, or at least strongly influencing its essence. It lacks the chromatic harmonies, all those secondary dominant chords, of the first theme, but that doesn't mean it's not expressive. Its use of poignant, non-harmonic tones is masterful, regardless of the relatively simple harmonies beneath them.
Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard the new theme pass into another variation of the first theme, the melody expressed in pizzicato strings with a solo violin at times joining with it an octave higher. We then hear another brief transitional passage drawing from the second theme in the solo violin, and with the horns repeating the dotted rhythm motive again. It passes into a final, highly florid, varied statement of the second theme, which soon reveals itself to be a coda. As this coda progresses, you could hear the horns again quoting the dotted rhythm motive that began the first theme. This continues to the conclusion of the movement, where, six measures before the end, it quietly takes on its full horn call identity. In fact, that dotted rhythm motive, in a much more aggressive and dramatic-sounding version when transferred fortissimo to the strings, serves as a bridge from the reverie-like final measures of the movement to the violin cadenza, which fires into the final movement. Here are the last few measures of the coda. While the concerto as a whole has long been established as a great masterpiece by historians, critics, and performers, there sometimes seems to be a little less enthusiasm for the final movement. It's certainly a high-spirited affair with a great blending of attractive melodies, but it may lack the originality of approach and the depth heard in the first two movements. This would hardly be a surprise at this point. Beethoven is still working in a concerto tradition where the first movement is probably going to be thought of as the weightiest, most substantial movement. 
with the second the best vehicle for lyrical expression. That leaves the third movement as somewhat of a light-hearted send-off, with plentiful opportunities for virtuoso display. And this particular movement fulfills those roles as well as any concerto finale that Beethoven ever composed, and that's saying quite a lot. Nevertheless, we're going to spend a bit less time exploring it. The movement is back in D major in 6A time and begins softly, and as I've suggested earlier, starts with a refrain theme often described as a classic hunting tune, which of course links it back to the horn call motive of the previous movement. The melody bounces up the tonic triad in zestful fashion and is rather repetitive, although no more than typical for melodies of this type. Some distinctive articulation marks, such as the staccato upbeat that begins the tune and dominates in the fourth measure, as well as some brief trills, add considerably to its jaunty identity. The score indicates that the initial statement of the melody is to be played on the G-string, the lowest on the violin, a technique for which the original soloist appears to have been well known. The texture is initially quite light, the soloist accompanied only by an offbeat cello bass line, although the other strings, oboes, and horns enter at measure 9 with a little two-measure tag ending in a fermata that returns the harmony to dominant. The soloist then takes the theme up an octave, delicately as the score indicates, with a slightly fuller accompanying texture, and the rest of the orchestra returns with its two-measure tag once again. Here are the first 20 bars of the opening refrain. Following this rather delicate presentation of the refrain theme, the whole orchestra, including the flute, trumpets, and timpani, now join together for a robust fortissimo version. They also take on a new section with a new melodic idea, consisting basically of an octave descent from A, the dominant note, to the lower A. But the effect is quite distinctive because of the new dotted rhythms introduced along with trills and staccato markings. This morphs into a transition still featuring the dotted 8th 16th note rhythms but now in a variety of melodic shapes. Here's the full orchestra's presentation of the refrain theme leading into the transition and closing with a repeated cadence on the D major tonic chord. The first episode is very cleverly scored. The horns, again in their rustic hunting horn mode, present a rather repetitive melodic idea in staccato eighth notes, while the solo violin spins a high A against it before joining in on the melody. The new theme continues on softly in the woodwinds, but the soloist in the meantime has moved on to repeated figuration patterns derived from the melody. And when the section comes to a close, we find ourselves in A major, the key of the dominant. The rather fragile-sounding soloist-dominated episode gives way after 14 measures to a very robust retransition section, 
where orchestral tutti and solo sections flip back and forth. The melodic ideas, unfolding generally in two-bar phrases, are familiar enough, and tonally we move from A major back to D major. I don't always play excerpts from these reed transitions, but this one is important for a couple of reasons. Beethoven does make use of some new melodic ideas, although they're not so remarkable in and of themselves. But he also takes us on a particularly interesting tonal journey back to D major, with some surprising chromatic chords and even a brief stop in E flat major. Perhaps even more importantly, the soloist, aided and abetted by some sustained chords from the orchestra and sometimes some repeated countermotives popping up here and there, engages in some elaborate 16th note figuration patterns, some of them involving double stops. We're going to jump now to the second episode. We've seen in Beethoven's rondos, and rondos by other composers as well, that major key movements quite frequently have one episode in a minor key. Beethoven's minor key episodes have been some of his most interesting, and while this one may be a little more pedestrian than some, it still makes a great effect in context. Here's the last part of the transition, which alights briefly on D minor before heading to G minor, repeating the opening motive of the refrain theme as it heads to the second episode. Here, the violin introduces the first part of the episode, a sweetly lyrical theme with just a touch of modal exoticism over a repeated pedal in the low strings, which it then hands over to the bassoon. The second part of the episode introduces, in its first four bars, a new rhythmic pattern and an ornamental turn, hinting at B-flat major ever so briefly, with quickly surging crescendos and decrescendos, before returning to G minor. The second four bars returns to the original opening phrase. We then hear a varied repeat of the second part with the bassoon given the melody, and the violin again embellishing it with 16th note figuration patterns of various sorts. Another varied restatement blends into the beginning of the retransition, again exploiting the opening motive of the refrain until we actually arrive back into D major with a return of the refrain.
Following the recurrence of the refrain, we hear a transition similar to the first, and the return of the first episode begins in D major again, although it moves to G major for a while before returning home. There are some differences in the solo part. For example, the violin soloist opens its statement an octave lower, and the new key also brings the double stop patterns lower in the range but things proceed much as they did the first time around. Of course, this time, there is a considerable cadenza for the soloist, and the soloist comes out of it with an extended trill sustained over motives from the refrain theme which pop up beneath the surface, hinting at different modulations, including a flat major, a key in which the soloist briefly presents the opening phrase of the refrain melody before lapsing back into complex figuration patterns. We do soon return to D major, where the opening measure of the theme is tossed back and forth between oboe and horn, alternating with the soloist's cleverly inverted countermelody. Eventually, a series of block chord syncopations tips us off that the final cadence is approaching fast, which it does, as the soloist gets one last sixteenth note swirl the strings reference the opening motive for the final time, the soloist whispers the opening measure three times, each time a third higher, and two fortissimo chords conclude the movement, including a triple stop tonic chord by the soloist. Here's the final section of the movement, back in D major, beginning where the soloist plays a free inversion of the opening motive alternating with oboe and horn playing the original version, against pizzicato reiterations of the tonic note, moving on to the conclusion of the movement. With that, we'll close our discussion of this great violin concerto. And for anyone wishing to investigate Beethoven's concerto in more detail, including the cadenzas, Beethoven's piano version of the work published later, historical context, reception history, and much more, I'd like to recommend Robin Stowell's book on the subject, published by Cambridge University Press. For our next episode, we'll look at two orchestral works, the Coriolan Overture composed in 1807 and the unique Wellington's Victory, also known as the Battle Symphony, composed six years later. <laughs>